0: All suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. When a 39-year-old woman disappears without a trace, the police are left with no witnesses or clues. The successful businesswoman had apparently made her way to the airport to return to work. However, mysteriously, she never made it. The police now have the difficult task of solving this case, and they were about to discover that there is much more to it than meets the eye. Welcome to the Beyond Evil podcast, where we discuss and dissect the most mysterious, terrifying, and mind-bending cases from all over the world. Before we begin, we would like to send our sincere condolences to the friends and family of Anna Walsh, who mysteriously disappeared on the 4th of January, 2023. Anna Walsh was a beautiful talented woman, petite in size at just about 5 foot 2 with long hazelnut hair, bright brown eyes and sparkling white teeth. At just 39 years old, she was a mother of 3 wonderful children and her life seemed perfect. Anna lived in Norfolk County, Massachusetts, in the small town of Cohasset. Cohasset is a town with a population of roughly 10,000 people, a stunning rural oasis that remains largely unspoiled by modern developments overlooking the Massachusetts Bay. Anna was a born achiever. She strived to have the best in life through her grit, determination, and hard work. Her life seemed to be without fault. She had achieved the goals of most adults at quite a young age. A family, money, a dream job, and a husband she adored. So where did it all go wrong? Later in life, Anna would meet the man that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with, a man with medium-length dark brown hair and a checkered past, Brian Walsh. He was not the achiever that Anna was, but he did manage to make money for himself, although not always through the most legitimate channels. Anna did end up spending the rest of her life with this man, but it was not as long a life as she had expected Wednesday, January 4, 2023, police received two calls at the same time regarding the same person. These calls came from the woman's employer and her husband. Her employers informed police that she had failed to turn up to work for the last three days and that her husband had called them asking if they knew where she was. This was something very out of character for her. The calls came from the employers and her husband, They were almost identical, but it is strange that the initial missing persons report was raised by her employers, not by her husband. Anna Walsh had not been seen since between 4 and 5 a.m. on New Year's Day. Her husband, Brian, had informed police that Anna had left home early on New Year's Day to get back to Washington, D.C., which was where she was working for a large real estate company. There had apparently been a problem with one of the properties she managed and had carpooled with someone to get to the airport and catch as early a flight as possible. This particular company kept records of their employees when they carpooled together, probably for safety reasons. But strangely, Anna hadn't been scheduled to share with anyone that day. Could it simply be an administration error? Maybe. Maybe not. Had she made her way to D.C. and had been so busy that she hadn't told anyone? Unlikely. If you were working there, your employers would surely know about it. Something else that police discovered that didn't stack up was that Anna's phone had pinged off of a mast near her home in Cohasset, Massachusetts, not just on New Year's Day as expected, but also on the 2nd of January, when Anna was supposed to already be in Washington, D.C. Police then decided to try the airlines. Surely they would know if this woman had passed through any airports and when. But again, they had no records of this lady traveling anywhere on New Year's Day. They did, however, find a booking that was scheduled for January 3rd of 2023 when she was due to return to work, but she didn't show up for that flight either. Police were confused. They had been told Anna had gone to attend to an emergency by her husband. So if she didn't go by plane, how did she travel? The quickest route was still 463 miles with an approximate driving time of eight and a half hours. Could she have driven? Anna literally vanished off the face of the earth. She was always very active on social media, but she hadn't posted anything for days. Her cell phone was eventually switched off. What could have caused this? William Quigley is the chief of Cohasset Police. He said, in this day and age, it is incredibly difficult not to leave a digital footprint somewhere. This can be done by your phone bouncing off of masts or using a credit card or debit card, but Anna has done none of these things. The case was baffling to police. No one had seen or heard from Anna, but in line with their usual procedure, the first suspect is always the missing person's partner, and that's where they began. Anna was actually born in Serbia. Her maiden name was Anna Krip. She emigrated to the United States in 2005. She was an achiever and was driven and ambitious. Before she made the US her permanent home in 2005, she spent years commuting back and forth between Serbia and Washington D.C., demonstrating how keen she was to succeed in her professional life. As well as speaking her native Serbian, she made the effort to learn English, French, Spanish, and Croatian fluently. She graduated from the University of Belgrade in Serbia, then went to study for her master's degree at the Ivy League Cornell University in New York. Like many students, after graduating, Anna went to work in hospitality to tide her over, but this was not where her heart was. She soon got a job at Tishman Spire, essentially a real estate company, but not your average real estate company. They were a huge corporation with projects and developments all over the world and a property portfolio that some estimate being worth more than $80 billion. One of their more famous projects that you may recognize was the development of the new New York Yankee Stadium. Companies that are so successful demand 110% from their staff, so it wouldn't be easy to land a job there. But Anna, being as driven as she was, came straight in as their regional general manager in Washington, D.C. The job came with great pressures and responsibilities, but those weren't without rewards. She loved to travel and often posted pictures on her social media of herself in different countries enjoying the finer things in life. But she worked so hard. Why not play as hard as well, right? When she began her first job, she continued to commute between New York and Washington, living in a townhouse that she had purchased in the Baltimore area in March of 2022. Now, I bet you're thinking, well, she must have been doing well for herself to buy a property on her own in such an expensive area. And you would be right. She was doing pretty well. The property cost a staggering $1.3 million. But she didn't just use social media to show off her very active social life. She got to post inspirational videos for others as well. In 2008, Anna Kripp, as she was still called, met a man named Brian Walsh. At the time, she was 25 and working at the stunning Whateley Hotel in the Berkshires as a reservations manager just a few miles from the New York-Massachusetts border. Anna's mother claims that her daughter first met Brian when she cleaned his apartment, and he was the son of a prominent Boston neurosurgeon, but had long since been estranged from his father. Since the age of 13, Brian had been a difficult person and had been a long-term patient at the Austin Riggs Psychiatric Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, having been diagnosed as a sociopath. He spent a total of 12 years in and out of mental institutions, That bears the question, how did he manage to stay in such a luxurious hotel? Brian had started his own business. He was the CFO and co-founder of LETS. That stands for Leadership and Effective Teamwork, Building Teamwork Strategies. The difficulty is, looking for this company is tricky, as it is advertised on Brian's LinkedIn page. But if you look for any further information regarding its dealings, you just won't find anything. However, putting that aside for a moment, Teamwork Strategies doesn't seem to have been Brian's only talent. He was featured in the Boston Globe, a prominent magazine for being a Boston-based international art dealer. Well, more on that shortly. When Anna met Brian, she described it as love at first sight. It was love at first sight for me, and my feelings haven't changed to this day, she said in 2021. Despite meeting what she considered to be the man of her dreams, she was still very driven and career-minded. She continued to commute between her workplaces, dating Brian long distance for several years, and eventually, after roughly seven years, the couple tied the knot on the 21st of December 2015 at the Emmanuel Episcopal Church in Boston. A few dozen friends and family attended the ceremony, but interestingly, not a single member of Brian's family was present. The pair seemed exceptionally happy and had no doubts that they would be together for the rest of their lives. After a short time, they started trying to have a family of their own. Within six years, they had three sons, aged two, four, and six, respectively. Remember my mentioning that Brian had dabbled in the art world? It seems that Brian's success in the art world didn't come without its, uh, perils, for now— Brian was facing some legal difficulties and was wearing a GPS ankle bracelet and it also put him under a curfew. This was because in November of 2016, an innocent buyer discovered two paintings for sale on eBay by the world-renowned artist Andy Warhol. These paintings were part of a Warhol Untitled Canvas, or a Shadow Collection, from 1978. The listed price for sale was $100,000. Who was the seller of these paintings? Why, imagine that. Brian Walsh. As far as the buyer was concerned, everything seemed genuine. The description of the items Brian had included a photo of an invoice which contained two Warhol Foundation numbers guaranteeing their authenticity. The total price, including the authentication, was $140,000. Now, let's take a step back for a moment eBay is a hugely successful company for all kinds of people, and they sell a huge variety of products. But how often do you see art dealers on the site selling very expensive, genuine works of art? The answer is almost never. You would never see, for example, Matthew Marks or Marion Goodman, both famous dealers, posting famous paintings on eBay. This is done through high-end auction houses such as Sotheby's in London. Maybe the buyer was being naive, but they decided to go ahead with the purchase anyway. On the 6th of November, 2016, they agreed to a deal to sell off of eBay to avoid any commission charges for $80,000. Although it may seem like a bargain for the buyer, it does have consequences. If you go and buy something from any online marketplace, such as Facebook or eBay or Amazon, you might pay a fee, but you also have protections included in that fee. If the item doesn't arrive, or it arrives and it's not what was listed, you can put in a claim and get your money back. Going off-site obviously removes all of those protections. On November 7, 2016, the buyer's assistant flew to meet Brian and complete the purchase. A contract had been signed between the buyer and Brian stating that the buyer had three days to accept the artwork. If they had any reservations or were dissatisfied with the items within that period, they were entitled to a full refund. The buyer's assistant handed over a cashier's check for $80,000, and Brian handed over the paintings as planned. Brian didn't hang around. He deposited the check on the same day, which does seem reasonable. Who wants a check for $80,000 just sitting around? Everyone seemed happy with the transaction. Within a few days, Brian was withdrawing the money from his account, presumably spending it. Over the next two weeks, he would withdraw over $33,000 of that initial $80,000. And this is where the problems began. The buyer hadn't yet seen the paintings and would not get around to doing so until the 16th of November, a full nine days after purchase. Eager to admire their new purchases, the buyer took them out of their protective packaging and noticed something was wrong right away. Firstly, no authentication certificates, invoice, or Warhol Foundation numbers had been included, as promised by Brian. Secondly, the staples used to secure the canvas to a wooden frame were brand new. These paintings were from 1978, yet these look as if they had just been painted. When the buyer referred back to the original eBay listing, they discovered that what they had bought did not match what had been listed, and now they suspected both of them to be fakes. Even more importantly, they were fakes they had just paid $80,000 for. Naturally, the buyer wanted to speak to Brian urgently, but Brian was not forthcoming. When the pair eventually did make contact, Brian came up with excuses as to why he had not sent the refund. In the U.S., this is a serious crime. Okay, the amount of money wasn't exactly a king's ransom, but it was still fraud. Brian was looking at up to 50 years in jail on top of a fine of up to $1 million. But what did Anna know about Brian's dodgy dealings? It appears nothing but she did manage to incriminate herself, presumably unwittingly. During the sale, Anna had communicated with the buyer via email, making her, in the eyes of the law, an accomplice. However, the affidavit did not include her in any criminal proceedings. There was no reason to suspect that she had any knowledge of the fraud. Brian remained on the ankle bracelet for some time. Over two years later, the case was still going through the federal court system. In 2019, Anna, who had remained completely loyal to the man she adored, wrote a letter in his defense to the courts. I am grateful that my husband is able to remain home as this case goes through the courts. My husband has been working tirelessly to break the past bad habits of his family and will never do anything like this again. His mother suffered a serious neurological event recently. Not only did Brian save her life, but he has been a tower of strength to me and the whole family through these difficult times. She is now getting better and keeps saying that she wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her son. She also went on to include charity work that Brian had apparently been a part of, such as working in homeless shelters and coaching others on the benefits of not committing crimes and having a good life. Surely Anna was laying it on a bit thick here, trying to defend your spouse is one thing, but making him out to be a born-again saint, well, that's a little much. One thing that cannot be questioned, however, is her loyalty to her husband, which was unwavering and absolute. She was truly smitten with him. But whatever your thoughts on the letter, it seems to have had some effect. The federal courts had decided to grant Brian a punishment that would not involve him going to prison. But before they could announce what that would be, Brian was accused of another crime. His father had died, and as they were not close, to put it mildly, Brian got nothing in the will. Well, almost nothing. During the reading of the will, it was discovered a note had been left by his father for Brian. It simply said, My Best Wishes Whether the genuine statement of a father full of regret or a sarcastic rubbing of salt into his wounds, Bryan did take it as an insult. He now stood accused of trying to embezzle money from his late father's estate. Bryan was accused of helping himself to over one hundred thousand dollars, plus pottery, paintings, and even a car which he had allegedly taken and sold straight away that had belonged to his father. As we mentioned earlier, because they had no leads or witnesses, the police had to start their investigation with Anna's husband, Brian. He was the last adult to see her alive and had told police that Anna had left for Washington on the 1st of January. But police discovered Anna's phone had been pinging off a mast on the 2nd near the family's home in Cohasset. Upon further questioning, Brian was asked about his whereabouts on the 1st. He explained that he had planned to go and collect his mother from the hospital she was recovering from her surgery, but also stated that his plans changed when his mother recovered faster than expected and drove herself home. However, he said that he still used the time to go and visit her and then run some errands as well. A major red flag was about to be waved right in front of the investigators' faces. Brian's phone didn't move that morning. It stayed at the family home. Brian stated that he simply had forgotten his phone and just went on about his day. The problem now was that his whereabouts could not be verified. This did not necessarily make him guilty, of course, and it's certainly not enough evidence to charge him with any offense, but his mother didn't live very far away. Why did it take three hours? Strangely, and to be blunt, unbelievably, Brian said the visit and errands took longer because he got lost on his way to his mother's house. How many of us would get lost on the way to our mom's house? Probably, well, none of us. On top of this, Brian stated that he visited two shops, Whole Foods and CVS, but again, there were no transactions to prove that he had been there from his bank statement. Could he have paid in cash? Of course he could. But then again, there wasn't any CCTV footage which covered both the car parks that had him in it. Not a single second of footage could be found showing Brian arriving or leaving either store. The questioning continued about the 2nd of January, the day after Anna allegedly returned to work in D.C. Brian said that he had taken one of his sons to get ice cream, innocent enough. But again, There's no proof of this. No images captured anywhere and no card transactions. Despite there being no card transactions, police were convinced that Brian was still hiding something. But this wasn't their first rodeo. Brian would have to do a better job to convince these experienced officers of his whereabouts. We are sure everyone watching is a law-abiding citizen, but think about this for a second. If you had killed or hurt someone and wanted it covered up, What would you need to do after disposing of the body? That's right, clean, clean, and clean some more. The police knew this well, so they went through the tedious process of checking the CCTV footage of local stores, looking for Brian, and seeing what, if anything, he had been up to. Whether he actually took his son for ice cream is debatable, but what isn't up for debate— is that Brian went to a store on the 2nd of January and bought some cleaning products. You might think, well, what's wrong with that? We all buy cleaning products all the time. Maybe. But Brian didn't buy just a few cloths and some antibacterial spray. He bought $450 worth of cleaning products in one go. Brian was either very confused or lying badly. Every time he tried to explain his whereabouts, his excuses would fall to pieces. He was pictured in Home Depot, shopping for all these products, including a mop, buckets, and tarps. He himself had gone shopping dressed to clean, wearing gloves and a surgical mask. While those are not your typical shopping attire, they could be considered suitable for someone who is trying to hide their identity. Brian denied being at Home Depot. He said he was out picking his kids up from school at that time. His lies were now growing ridiculous. If it wasn't such a serious situation, they would almost be laughable. School wasn't even in session that day. Amazingly, Brian maintains that he did not leave his house all day. His story is unraveling fast. Only an idiot could believe the rubbish that was coming out of his mouth at this point. On top of the trip to Home Depot, Brian's phone pinged off of a tower in Abington and Brockton. This only made Brian's situation worse. Not only was he lying about his movements, but remember, he is still wearing an electronic tag around his ankle. He was not permitted to travel to either of those places as part of his bail conditions. Police had heard enough. As far as they were concerned, Brian had not spoken a single syllable of truth throughout the entire interview, and it wasn't getting them anywhere. After all, let's not forget, a woman's life may yet depend on them finding her as fast as they could. More convinced than ever of Brian's involvement, police obtained a search warrant for the family home. On arrival, police found blood splats in the basement as well as a knife which was partially broken but also covered in blood. Things didn't look good and an immediate, thorough search of the house was conducted but they failed to find Anna. Cohasset police now had to look outside the home. They called in officers from as many locations as they could. They searched all over Cohasset and neighboring towns. Despite searching acre upon acre of woodland, the search yielded no results. On January 8th, a full week since Anna had last been seen, the Norfolk District Attorney's Office now became involved and they took the lead in the case. Within hours, Brian, who was still being held in custody, was formally arrested. On January ninth, he was led out of the Cohasset jail in handcuffs, where he gave a smug smile for the cameras. Brian was summoned to an arraignment hearing where it was determined that he would be held in custody unless he could produce a $500,000 cash bond. On January ninth, his plea hearing took place. A plea of not guilty was entered on Brian's behalf. The hearing was short, and Brian only spoke to say that he did understand the charges of misleading investigators and the murder of Anna Walsh. So is this it? Case closed? Not a chance. The case was about to be turned on its head. The home that Brian and Anna lived in was the second property they had owned on that same street. They had moved into their current larger property and sold their former home to a young family. As police conducted their search of a nearby woodland, the former home of Brian and Anna mysteriously caught fire. Thankfully, the young parents, their toddler, and nanny, who were all home at the time, got out safely. One charge that we didn't mention previously was that of intimidating a witness. Police have yet to say who the witness was that Brian allegedly intimidated, but surely the house of a neighbor catching fire turned out to be quite a coincidence, don't you think? Even though the district attorney and the police believe they had their man, For the moment, there was very little evidence. Everything they had was circumstantial, and for the time being, even linking the bloody knife to Brian would be difficult. In what could be seen as a desperate yet valiant attempt to find some hard evidence, police extended their search to the trash transfer station in Peabody, hoping that something could be found from the Cohasset area which would explain what had happened to Anna. Officers were seen digging through mountains of trash for hours, Since the search of the couple's home, which supplied police with some clues but nothing more, law enforcement had to think outside the box. Who else did Brian know? There was only one person, his mother. So police now searched the trash from a dumpster that had been brought to the apartment building where Brian's mom lived. While all this was going on, police also impounded the family car, which they described as looking like it had recently and thoroughly been cleaned. In other words, it was too clean for a family vehicle. Of course, most families do their best to keep their homes and vehicles tidy, but let's be honest, when you have three kids riding in the car regularly, some mess is going to occur. However, this car was extremely tidy. They were also in the process of checking Brian's GPS tag that he was wearing for the previous art offense, but the most suspicious of all was Brian's internet search history on his cell phone. No matter what you search, and no matter how well you think you may have deleted your history, law enforcement can still find it. The phone showed that Brian had searched how to dispose of a 115-pound woman's body and how to dismember a body. Meanwhile, back at the Peabody Trash Transfer Center, police found what they believed to be clues and evidence. While sifting through the trash, they came across bags with blood on them a hatchet, a hacksaw, a rug, and lots of used cleaning products. As with all criminal cases, police try to establish the means, motive, and opportunity. Did Brian have the means? Well, yes, he did. He lived at the address with various household objects that he could use to inflict injuries or kill someone. On top of that, thanks to Anna, the couple had lots of money. and Brian had the cash at his disposal to buy anything he wanted. Did he have the opportunity? Yes, he was with his wife all the time when she wasn't working. But what about the motive? One has to assume, although police have not officially gotten to the bottom of it, the motive was money. Anna was very successful and a hard-working woman who had plenty of money in the bank. We know from Brian's past that he has been in trouble with the law on more than one occasion, most recently, as we explained, for defrauding a buyer out of $80,000 for two fake Andy Warhol paintings. Given Anna's assets, her properties, cars, fine jewelry, it is reasonable to assume that she must have had life insurance, and that life insurance would no doubt be worth more than just a few dollars. Finally, on the 18th of January, 2023, Brian Walsh was formally charged with the murder of his wife. The district attorney's office has yet to say what their new breakthrough was that led to him being formally charged but it must be compelling enough for law enforcement to believe that they can get a conviction. Bryan was arraigned at the Quincy District Court on the 18th of January. He was asked if he understood the charges that he faced, which are murder and improper dismemberment of a body. Assistant District Attorney Lynn Beeland said, DNA evidence found on a pair of slippers Clothes and a Tyvek disposable suit led investigators to believe that Brian Walsh dismembered and discarded his wife's body. Brian will remain in jail until his trial. A date has not been set yet. Whatever your thoughts on this case, it seems that police and their investigators are very confident that Brian Walsh is guilty. Geoffrey Chaucer was the first to coin the phrase love is blind in his play The Merchant's Tale. In this case, Love appears to have been blind, Anna, a stunningly beautiful, successful career woman, and Brian, the con man. The two could not have been more different in the way they conducted themselves both in their private and professional lives. We must not forget that there are three other victims, so to speak, three innocent boys that will never see their mother again. We can, of course, hope and pray that Anna is found alive, but we do have to be realistic. Given the evidence that investigators say they have found, it is unlikely. We can't be sure what happened to her just yet, and Brian isn't exactly keen to share the details with anyone either, but the police, at least, seem to have no doubt that he is responsible for the death of his wife. At Beyond Evil, our first thoughts are always for the victim and innocent members of their families who, in this case, have lost a much-loved mother, daughter, and granddaughter. We can only pray that Anna is now at peace, away from the man that she thought was the love of her life, but turned out to be a con man who may have just taken her life. Rest in peace, Anna. If you found this story compelling, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and please leave a five-star review if you'd like to show your support. Also, don't forget to hit the notification bell in order to stay up to date each time we reveal a new shocking case. Until next time, stay safe and keep your eyes peeled. You never know what's lurking in the shadow.